So please join me in Revelation chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning for a sermon passage. I thought I'd begin by asking if it's too soon to wish you a Merry Christmas. You guys think it's a little bit early in the season? Honestly, this, this passage makes a perfect Christmas text. And um, I'm generally inclined to say it's a little bit too early to say that and certainly to start seeing decorations put up um, already. But um, this passage, I have a pastor friend of mine who uses this numerous on numerous occasions for Christmas as a text to reflect upon the birth of Christ. And as you'll see in our reading of this text, that is relevant. But before we get there, I, I want to remind you of where we've been with the the blast of the seventh trumpet in the previous chapter. The wrath of God fell upon unbelievers. And at the same time, the saints were gathered. So even as we're reading in Ezekiel um, chapter 21, we see what's taking place here in that seventh trumpet blast is the wrath of God being poured out. But at the same time, saints are, are being gathered to himself And so we came to the end of the third cycle at the end of chapter 11. So we've seen the the letters to the seven churches in the first cycle of Revelation. Then you have the breaking of the seven seals in that second section. Um, And that's followed by the seven trumpets. And in between all of that, at several points, you have these visions of judgment that intersect with visions of glory. Visions of the throne room in heaven. So Revelation deals with the big picture of life. And we learn about the culmination of all that God has done and is doing in this world. We pay attention in order to endure life's greatest challenges. We need a view of God that can handle those ultimate trials. And so this morning's passage supports that end as well. John just witnessed At the very end of chapter 11, uh, the opening up of the temple, there was this deepening revelation of the glory of the heavenly temple as it's opened and the Ark of the Covenant was made visible. And from there, John provides that he kind of takes a step back, if you will, and and looks at at the history of God's redemptive plan. We have these redemptive histories. There's actually... Seven sketches through chapters 12 through 14, uh, which mostly point to the spiritual realities that are behind the events of history. And so although the, the histories are not explicitly numbered as the seals and the trumpets and the bulls are, uh, the pattern is still present. The pattern where we begin with uh, Christ's earthly Um, coming his first appearance and then it culminates in his return and so you have the entire age this present age being represented through chapters 12 through 14 in these seven sketches and 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 in light of that we'll see the theme that same theme that we've seen throughout revelation that christ's victory over evil continues to carry through this section. So before we read chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you speak to us through your word, that every time we open it, we should come with expectation to hear from you. We should come recognizing our need to, to listen. And Lord, so we ask you to open our ears to give us eyes to see the truth that you have for us. Soften our hearts that we respond to this in obedience. Or that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. That we would give you glory even as we sit under the preaching of your word. And so arrest our hearts and our minds even now. Remove the distractions. And equip us for the work that you've called us to. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Be with me. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, this passage establishes the, the main characters in the back story of history. And so we begin, if you're following along in your outline, with the woman in labor, verses 1 and 2, the woman in labor. John starts by telling us this is a great sign that appeared in heaven. And so she's not a a literal person. But that doesn't mean that everything else is literal, that that only those that he describes as signs and and symbols um, are to be taken symbolically. No, he is... He, he has a, a basic method of interpretation for Revelation is to be symbolic. He's writing apocalyptic literature. It's a genre that requires we understand it symbolically. But as he starts another cycle here, he reminds his readers of this, that this is a sign that he has seen in this vision, a sign in heaven. And the associations of this woman, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, it, crown of 12 stars, it, it has cosmic importance. And she is someone of high esteem. And in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11, Joseph had a dream uh, that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. And his father knew exactly what he was implying by that, that he was implying that, that he and his wife and, their, and his 11 brothers would all be bowing down to him, right? And so he rebuked Joseph for suggesting that he and Rachel and, their, and his brothers would all bow down. And yet this did happen, right? Joseph rose to power in Egypt, and it was a, a prophetic vision of that occurrence. 
Well, it seems John is now using these cosmic beings to represent the whole family of Israel. Right? As, as Joseph's family, as Isaac's family represented, or uh, Jacob's family, I mean, uh, represented, represents the whole family of Israel here. John is using that symbolism in reference to the woman. She's clothed in the sun, the moon under her feet. And 12 stars crown her head. She's the mother of the Messianic community under both the Old and the New Covenants. Simply put, this woman represents the universal church. She's wearing a crown of victory. There's two kinds of crown in this very passage. The crowns, the royal crowns that are on the heads of the dragon. And then you have the victor, the crowns that are... It's the same word that's used uh, for the winners of the Olympics, right? They would get the, the wreath, the victory wreath, to put on their head. So she has the, the wreath or the crown of victory. And if you're still confused or not sure if this represents the church, well, just look down at verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so her offspring represents the covenant community. So why is she in labor? Well, under the Old Covenant, in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 17 through 18, it depicts Israel rising in labor, but only giving birth to the wind. They, they were unable to bring salvation to the earth, according to that passage. But this woman is about to give birth to the Messiah in fulfillment of Micah chapter 4, verse 10. The child would truly rescue God's people. Salvation belongs to him, and that's why God has preserved and continued to preserve his rebellious people. Because he knew one day this child would be born through their labor, through their pain, through their experience, right? God would use them to bring salvation. It's through the line of promise that the child would be born. And so the pain of childbearing, in fact, is a prolonged existence of thousands of years. The covenant community lived in agonizing labor pains to bring forth this child of promise. Over and over waiting and thinking, maybe this child would be the one. But now that Christ has come, it is the mission of the church to testify about that child of promise. To that, that child continues to be the center point, the pivotal moment in church history, in redemptive history. And so this woman in labor represents the church clothed in radiant splendor, right in the, in the splendor of holiness. She has been set apart and protected by God, as the prophet Zechariah in chapter 2, verse 8 says, she's the apple of his eye. God rejoices over her as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Isaiah 62, verse 5 tells us. It's a reference I often turn to in weddings because it's an excellent way of portraying God's love for us because as we see in every wedding there's that moment where the bride begins to walk down the center aisle and and everyone stands and looks at her but 
multiple people in the audience will begin to turn and look at the groom as well. Just to get a glimpse of his face, to see the radiance of his face as he's watching her come. Right? It's this beautiful picture of love and anticipation and hope of their union. And that is what God is portraying himself here as. But not only is she gloriously beautiful, but she is pregnant. The illustration goes to another level because the husband remains enamored by her beauty, but he's also filled with now these protective instincts of a new father. And that's God's posture towards his people. He rejoices over you and he protects you. He cares for you. He gathers you under his wings and he loves you. And so you've been loved and preserved from the threats of the dragon that is waiting and described here in verses 3 and 4. The dragon in waiting. The dragon immediately in verse 9 is associated with that ancient serpent. And verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So no mystery here about who this dragon represents. Very clearly, it is Satan who has always been at odds with God's purposes since his fall. So the dragon is described as great and red, two descriptors that in Revelation are repeatedly referring to evil. He has seven heads, each crowned, not with a victory wreath as the woman was crowned with, but with crowns of royalty. It conveys this dragon's authority. And then the horns, the ten horns, imply that he wields his authority with power and strength. Again, it's not meant to take everything so detailed where you try to figure out, well, if there's seven heads but ten horns, that means some of the heads have two horns, or does one head have more horns than the others? Or what is the, what is the imagery here? It's, it's not meant to be so confusing. It's just meant to convey these numbers that we have seen time and time again as being a picture of completion. It's... it's It's a a picture of complete authority and power. And the horn implies that he wields that power with vengeance and strength. And yet that power is counterfeit. Because that power is vastly inferior to the true sovereign authority of the child. Who will wipe out this dragon as we get to chapter 20. With no hesitation. The seven-headed dragon will be swiftly defeated in chapter 20, verse 10, when our Lord returns himself wearing many crowns. So this dragon shows his strength by sweeping a third of the stars from the sky. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. And some have taken this as a reference to the angelic beings being swept down to the earth with the fall of Satan. And and you can can look to references in Job and 2 Peter and Jude to to come away with that interpretation. But I think it makes more sense and it's more consistent uh, to see this as a display of of Satan's attack upon God's created order. Uh, Satan brings chaos and disturbance in opposition to God. He makes war upon the woman and her child. And Satan's ultimate goal is to sabotage God's redemptive purposes in Christ Jesus. And so this very conflict was promised in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, carried on throughout the Old Testament. Consider the fact that Cain killed Abel and and then after that, Seth's birth, 
the, after, after Seth was born, the, the world just grew more and more corrupt, and it appeared that evil had won. But then God sends the flood to, to wipe out everyone except Noah's family. He preserves and protects his promise through one family. And God establishes his covenant with Abraham. And, and even though he was old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, God miraculously provided them with the son of promise, Isaac. And time and time again, we see this gift, this, this preservation of God's promise, usually in very miraculous ways, but it's coupled with threats that that promise was going to be overwhelmed right, by evil. And so Jacob deals with the threats of Esau. Joseph survives in Egypt. God leads them out of Egypt through the hand of Moses. But then the wilderness threatens to end them. The Israelites experienced miraculous victory in wars through Joshua. But under the judges, they almost lose it all. They spiral into deeper and deeper compromise. And then the kings enter into the picture. And David is almost taken out by Saul. And every king after him is threatened with exile and foreign enemies. Queen Esther saves the nation from, from extinction, from genocide. Right? At Haman's plea to King Ahasuerus. So in the grand scheme, we see Satan's various threats to the peace and purity of the church, but all of them ultimately fail time and time again. God is steadfast in his promise to his covenant people. And so we see a picture here of the dragon waiting to devour the woman's child as soon as it's born. And we know that that happened in history, right? He attempts to slaughter the child through Herod's decree, described in Matthew chapter 2. Again, in the wilderness, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after his baptism, he goes out and Satan tempts him there in the wilderness. And then he lands his strongest blow when he entered into Judas, who betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders, who then handed him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. And once again, it looks like the dragon has become triumphant. But that's the paradox of salvation because the cross that killed the child was the very means God used to crush the head of that ancient serpent. Christ took the penalty of sin and defeated the power of sin as he died upon the cross. And then in his resurrection, the enemy of death was also defeated. Death lost its sting. Finally, upon Christ's return, every vestige of evil will be removed from this earth. And yet we remain in this body of flesh. We continue to struggle against sin. We face spiritual attack routinely. And so we can assume that we're still living in the midst of these days. These 1,260 days that are described at the end, we're still in them. We still face this threat. Evil has not been eradicated just yet. These days will not conclude until Christ's second coming. And so we must take spiritual warfare seriously. And it's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to just dismiss. 
Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking to devour the woman's offspring. And our primary struggle is spiritual in nature. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So do you believe that your main struggle is against an opposition that you cannot see? Or do you find yourself constantly fearing and fighting against, against physical realities? And because if that is the case, then you're, you're too focused on the course of this world. You're not thinking about the spiritual realm. And, and if this is reality, if our main struggle is against the opposition that we cannot see, then it should change the way we live. Right? You should, the things that you fear, where you place your hope, should be different in the world. You will not expect instant relief and gratification on earth. Right, but you will be sustained by the hope of a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As Peter encourages us. Right, your trust will be that the dragon was ultimately defeated by the child who was in power. That's your third point in verses 5 through 6. The child in power. A child is born, one who is to rule the nations, as Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 teaches us. Notice this third character is not referred to as a sign. The other two are explicitly mentioned as signs, but this third character is not said to be a sign because it is a literal person that's in view. Right? Nearly all commentators agree that the child is Christ. The seed of the woman promised to rescue God's covenant people in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. So this child would have total dominion over mankind, but the child, it says, was caught up to heaven and God's throne. He wasn't removed from dominion. Rather, his ascension is described here as establishing his reign. And I think that's important because some commentators refer to this reign, the reign of this child, as being an earthly reign that is reserved for a thousand years in the future. He's in heaven now, but when he returns, he'll establish his reign on earth. But it makes much more sense in the context and the rest of Scripture to see this reign as beginning upon Christ's ascension. And really, in his, in his resurrection, his exaltation, where that begins, his, his reign begins. So the focus of this narrative is his birth and his ascension. It skips over some pretty significant details in this child's life. These events bracket his earthly ministry, however. And so it includes his redemptive accomplishments, both in his humiliation and his exaltation. Both are represented there. The humiliation of his birth that led to his perfect life and then his death on the cross and his burial but then his resurrection, his ascension, his seated at the right hand of God the Father, his return to come and judge the living and the dead, all of that represents his exaltation. And so this is in summary fashion describing all of Christ's redemptive events. 
After making several post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, Jesus was taken up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God, according to Mark chapter 16, verse 19, in order that he might fill all things, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus was taken up into glory so that it might be perfectly clear to everyone that he had accomplished his earthly mission. Redemption had been accomplished. He was received into glory. He secured the redemption of his covenant people in his death and resurrection. And now having ascended into heaven, Jesus appears in the presence of God on our behalf. According to the author of Hebrews, everyone has been subjected to him. Again, this is all describing Christ's present rule and reign over this earth. By ascending, the Holy Spirit is sent to his church in power in Acts chapter 2. Christ's ascension affirms his supremacy. It affirms the Father's approval of the Son's sacrifice. And so during this time of his reign and his ascension, during that whole time, this woman, it's described as fleeing to the wilderness in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she was where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. And as I've already alluded to, these numbers, which we've seen in the last chapter, 42 months, 1,260 days. Also, later on, we'll see a time, times, and half a time. All of them are references to a period of three and a half years. They refer to this present age. It's not a literal three and a half years. It's it's taking the perfect number of seven and, and cutting it in half. It's saying that this time period is going is to be cut short for the sake of the elect. And for their sake, God is going to put an end to the persecution that his people experience. He's going to cut it short. You can look at that language in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13 as well. So the 1,260 days is a time of wilderness suffering and yet divine nourishing. And just like the Old Covenant people, just as the, the wilderness generation was preserved and looking forward to their entrance into the promised land, but they had to undergo that period of time in the wilderness. So the church is presently being preserved through various trials and tribulations, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Which is what the promised land always pointed forward to, according to Hebrews 11. So Jesus escaped all of Satan's attacks. During his earthly ministry. And now he reigns from heaven protecting the bride that he loves. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. But this is also a sobering thought as well. Those who do not submit under Christ's reign will fall under his judgment. And it is a fierce and terrifying judgment to fall into the hands of the living God. But we know that the king will protect his bride. And the way he protects her is by defeating all his and her enemies. And so the great drama of history centers around this promised child who defeated the great dragon. Christians belong to the, the church militant. We are in constant spiritual warfare. Satan's power is great as 
as John has previously written in his letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, but, but Satan has already been defeated. Right? And we can trust that we will be protected and provided for in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our temptations even. That God provides a way of escape through His Son, Jesus Christ. And our present time is a time of testing. And since it's a spiritual war, our weapons are not carnal. Instead of a sword, we take up the Word of God. Instead of shields, we are protected by faith in Christ. And instead of responding to evil with vengeance and retaliation, we respond with compassion and prayer, entrusting ourselves to a just God. Knowing that vengeance is his. All right, and then we, we trust that he will protect us and provide for us as we proclaim that message of hope to a dying and lost world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these reminders that there is a backstory to history. There is a events taking place in the spiritual realm underneath everything we see taking place. And oftentimes we're so focused on, on our physical conditions, our physical experiences, the trials and tribulations that we face today and tomorrow, and we don't recognize the spiritual realities underneath it. Lord, help us to recognize that, that our greatest enemy is the one that we cannot see. And to fight that spiritual battle with the armor that you've given us. The armor of your word, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of your, of your word, feet that are shod with the, the gospel proclamation. I mean, we continue to to put this armor on and face each day that spiritual reality in mind. But not because you're disinterested in our physical bodies. You, you certainly are. But the greater reality is always the things that we cannot see, the things that we look forward to by faith now, which will be sight in eternity. Lord, help us even now to long for that. And as we come before you singing in this song of response, Lord, may we worship Christ, the risen King. In his name we, we ask it. Amen.